Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. media is essential to protecting American liberty, which is why the First Amendment provides such a strong protection for freedom of the press. If the media are to carry out their societal responsibilities, journalists must have the trust of news consumers. But these days, trust is in low supply. An October 2022 Gallup poll found that only 34% of Americans trust the mass media to report the news fully accurately, and fairly. Why are the media experiencing this profound crisis of trust, and what can be done about it? My guest today has some valuable insights. Alice Stewart has worked on both sides of the microphone, as a source for reporters and a journalist in her own right. She was communications director for the presidential campaigns of Senator Ted Cruz, Governor Mike Huckabee, Senator Rick Santorum, and Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, and also served as the Arkansas Deputy Secretary of State. Stewart worked as an anchor reporter in Little Rock, Arkansas and Savannah, Georgia, and also hosted The Alice Stewart Show, a talk radio program that featured national and local political leaders. The goal of the show was to engage in civil discussions about politics and agree to disagree in a respectful manner, a continuing professional passion for Stewart. She is currently a CNN political commentator, communications consultant, and is a resident fellow at Harvard University Kennedy Institute of Politics. She co-hosts the weekly Hot Mics from Left to Right podcast with her CNN colleague, the liberal commentator Maria Cardona. Alice, welcome to Humanize. Hey, Wesley. It's so great to be with you. Thank you. A lot, lot, of, lot of topics to, to discuss here today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, media really has become a lot of the story these days, hasn't it? Right. It, it really has. And I, I think, you know, we'll delve into this uh, as we talk, but it's not what it used to be. You know, it used to be, you know, three channels and, you know, one newspaper per city. And that was how you got your news. Now there's uh, so many options. It's like the grocery store. There's 50 kinds of potato chips now. Now there's all kinds of uh, different kinds of media. Yes, we definitely will get into that. Before, though, um, you've worked in politics for most of your adult life. What got you uh, interested in that career field? Well, my first, I, I like to think half of my career, I was a journalist. I was a news anchor and reporter and also did radio and started out in, in, in newspaper. But as I was a, a journalist, a weekend anchor in Little Rock, Arkansas, I became um, friends, I, I guess is the right word, with, with uh, Governor Huckabee. Um, you know, there was a professional relationship. I was a journalist. He was the governor. But we became friends. And um, I actually trained him for his first marathon. And we ran together a lot and got to know each other. And it just made me start thinking, well, you know, politicians are actually really nice and politics is not, you know, as bad as it, it, it seems. And um, around that time, there became an opening in his, his governor's office for his uh, communications director. And I took that and, you know, the rest is history in terms of I, you know, uh, you know switched from covering the news to, to sort of being in the news and politics. And, um, you know, it was you know, for me having the good fortune to work for someone of his character. Um, it was a, it was a good transition. And now I'm blessed in a way to be able to do media and politics at the same time. So, but, you know, getting into it as I did, how I did, um, it, it really 
sort of baptism by fire. You know, you just go right into a governor's office for somebody that was soon to be running for president, and you know, it was off to the races. So you were you were at the big leagues once that started. <laughs> yes, and as we often said, we had a we had a small staff and a big job, and it was like drinking water from a fire hose. But you know, it's it's a you know one of those opportunities where you know you can be. You know, from a small state like Arkansas, and have the opportunity to do, you know, front front row of uh, American presidential politics, which is exciting. How has the media changed since you began your work in politics and punditry? It, it's mostly is more competitive. Um, you know, again, when I started out in news, it was, you know, you had you know, three TV stations in, you know, each town. I started out in Atlanta and then Savannah and Little Rock. And, you know, you had the local paper and there wasn't the social media and there wasn't the the competition amongst journalists to, you know, tweet out, you know, some breaking news or, you know, do a blog or do a podcast. It, it, you know, it wasn't the 24-hour news coverage. So there was, you know, you had the, you know, the morning, noon, five, six, and 10 o'clock deadlines. And now there's a deadline every second. So, from that standpoint, journalists have a lot more um, incentive or pressure, I guess is the better word, pressure to um, produce content and pressure to um, outscoop the competition and the pressure to, you know, to make sure they have, you know, exclusive content that uh, the competition doesn't have. And, you know, in, in some regards, that's, you know, it's exciting, but in other regards, it, it does create many, many opportunities for, you know, inaccurate or misleading or um, not fully vetted and factually accurate information to get out there, you know, in the, the bloodstream of, of media. And uh, I think that's, that's one of the, the biggest changes. There, there's not the opportunity for the, the editing and fact checking and double checking uh, as in the, the olden days, I guess you would say, because there's just the constant pressure to get it out and, you know, get it, get it right. Um, you can worry about that later, but just get it out. Yeah, I, I've been uh, on both sides of the mic, too. And uh, I've noticed that when I used to write articles, there was a tremendous amount of fact-checking. Sometimes I felt like it was a proctologist exam. <laughs> right. uh, and and these days, when, when I write an article, even about a very controversial subject, it's almost like there's zero fact-checking. And I have to be very careful because I'm the one who'll get in trouble if things are wrong. Right. Uh, spoke, speaking with a colleague yesterday at CNN and went from a, a, a smaller online news organization to a, a big, I won't say which large city um, it is, um, but she's a, a, an opinion writer and there's much more um, editing and fact checking and attribution. And if you um, say a fact or give a stat, you generally have to link an attribution to it for, for fact checking purposes. And, you know, from her standpoint, she said, I like this much more because uh, I'm a less likelihood of being sued <laughs> because <laughs> yes. there's, there's someone checking and double checking the content before that it goes out. And, you know, from that standpoint, um, you know, the, the, the double and triple editing and fact checking is, is a good thing. But again, with, with so much um, content and so many 24 hour, seven days a week um, news outlets, you know, Good or bad, and all the journalists I've met have the, the best intentions. But when you're um, under pressure and under deadline, and you know under the gun to to beat the competition, sometimes you don't have the luxury of of making sure everything is 100% correct. I've also noticed there's been less of a tendency to correct mistakes, and sometimes it's a stealth correction where a factual error is just erased because it's mostly online now without a comment ever being made. I think that harms the credibility of the outlet, don't you? It, it does. And, and and here's the thing that, that I always say, what what happened oftentimes on a, on a campaign, a, a journalist would you know be at an event and take part of something that a candidate would say and tweet it out. And, you know, they didn't follow it up with, you know, but he, you know, put it into context. Here's exactly what this person said. And, you know, by that point, the person has, you know, tweeted out something out of context and, you know, without a, a full grasp of what the candidate was saying. And everyone's retweeted it and everyone's done stories. And honest to goodness, Wesley, within an hour, it's, it's all over every outlet. And by the time I can track the person down to, to correct it, you know, they say, okay, I'll just delete it. 
well, by then, you know, yeah. as I say, the, the truth can get halfway around the world before, or their way, but what do they say? A lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can put its pants on. Yeah. And, you know, once a reporter tweets something out and it's retweeted and takes on a life of its own um, and just simply merely deletes it, um, that that doesn't correct the problem. And, you know, one thing that I always um, try to ask for, but rarely if ever get is, you know, if you're going to make a mistake, um, the the retraction or correction needs to be in the same space and, um, you know, prominence as the mistake was made, but we know how it goes. Oftentimes the corrections are made, you know, the last page in small font and, um, you know, by then the damage is done, which is unfortunate, but, you know, I, I can't stress enough, Wesley, you know, 99.9% .9 of the journalists I've ever dealt with and I work with and, um, you know, have relationships with, you know, they want to get it right. They want to make sure that they're reporting it accurately. But, you know, in the day and age of, of you know, the pressure to produce, um, sometimes, you know, misleading information gets out there. And then, of course, you have the problem of, you know, they'll write a story and then it gets to the, to the headline writers and the headline writers take something out of context. And that's the headline, which might or may not, generally may not, um, accurately reflect the the context of the article, and uh, you know sometimes people just read the headlines, and that's, that, that's unfortunate. And you know the then the journalist can say, well, I don't write the headlines, and you know it's a never ending uh, saga of of you know getting the getting the truth out there. It's a constant struggle to, and, and right. of course sometimes uh, the quote the truth. You know, there's a famous line from Pontius Pilate: "What is truth?" Um, you know uh, the the source wants a certain uh, take, and perhaps there's a different take uh, uh, provided by the the uh, reporter. That doesn't mean that the reporter is wrong, and so there really is a natural kind of adversarial relationship between the source and the journalist, isn't there? There is, and, and you know, the source is generally you know the person that wants their side of the story out there, and as as any responsible journalist. Um, should do is take the source's information and um, go get the other side of the story and, you know, let the listener or the viewer or the reader um, make up their own mind as, as to, you know, where the truth lies or which version of the story they want to believe. And, you know, every source has a, has a motive or an objective or a, an idea that they want to, to get out there, but it's up to the journalist to, to present, you know, all sides of a story and make, you know, put the facts out there and let the, let the audience and the consumer decide. Is part of the problem, the, the increased reliance um, in, at least in some media outlets on the anonymous source, where in terms of trust, uh, you know, how do I know that the anonymous source actually said that? And how do I know that the anonymous source hasn't been wrong before and the journalist is still using the same anonymous source? Well, that falls on the journalists, right? You know, as a previous journalist, I had, I feel like I had tremendous sources, um, but I only needed to get burned once to realize I'm not going back to that well. And, you know, it's, it's the, the, the journalist has the responsibility to, you know, generally you want all your sources um, on the record. You want to be able to use their name. Uh, sometimes that's not possible and you can use the information they use on background or you can use it off the record. But you know, it, most journalists, uh, and I always abided by the rule, at least have, you know, another independent source of confirmation. You know, if, if someone from the administration calls and says, you know, the, the president is going to fly to Bermuda tomorrow. Um, you're wise to get someone else to to confirm the the, the information that the the source gives, because you know it's it's one thing if the the journalist keeps going to the, a, a bad source, but over time, the readers and the consumers and the audience are, are going to realize I can't. I can't trust what this reporter says. Right. And so it's on the reporter eventually. Right. Yeah. And obviously the news outlet too, it puts their credibility on the line. You know, if they're putting out inaccurate information, um, you know, it puts the credibility of the, in, the entire news organization, you know, and there's, there's information that's, um, you know, false. And then there's information that just might not be what you want to hear. And you have to understand there's a difference. And when, whenever, a journalist would write something that was um, 
we didn't like, whether it was on a campaign or in the governor's office, um, I could I couldn't call and ask for a correction unless it was factually inaccurate. Right. And when I would, there was factual inaccuracies. I would call them, and I didn't do it often. And I I I didn't ever go after reporters that just reported things that we might not have liked, even if they were true. But they knew if I called them and said your story is factually inaccurate, here's the correct information. You know, nine times out of ten, I would get a correction of some type because I didn't do it every time. I didn't call them up and beat them over the head just because I didn't like the story. So yeah, yeah, that's there's, a diff- important- there's a difference right. there. Yeah. Right. Um, it's no qu- uh, you know, surprise to, for listeners to understand that the country is pretty badly divided today. Uh, what part, if any, do you think the media has played, particularly social media, in that uh, cultural estrangement? But I think what, what it's done in, in probably more social media than – than mainstream media or, or cable outlets. Um, social media has created um, different um, areas where you can seek out your confirmation bias, right? If you're extremely far right thinking and your ideology um, represents a certain viewpoint, you're often going to seek out news outlets or, you know, conspiracy theory websites, you know, as people like to call them, that confirm your previously held biases, right? And that goes for people on the right and the left. And, you know, given that, you'll have people that will chase information down a rabbit hole on the right or the left that makes absolutely no sense, but they see it on the internet and they they hear it on, you know, some of their, you know, right or left leaning radio shows and and they believe it. And I think that kind of um, social media um, information dissemination has created a big divide. Yeah. You're not going to get to, you know, things so far divided on, on generally on mainstream media, obviously some cables, but where, where we see a lot of it is, is these um, outlets where information is just not factually accurate and it, people are not encouraged to engage in their critical thinking. They just want to go somewhere to hear something that they already think and confirms what they believe and they're stuck in their corners and they're not going to challenge themselves to think um, maybe there might be another side to this, or maybe this is not factually accurate. So I I think the more we can get away from um, confirmation bias and encourage critical thinking, the better we would be as a country, but that's a very, very, very heavy lift. That's why I think uh, the work you do is important. Um, you know, you're on CNN, which is generally perceived to be a relatively liberal outlet, but you present the conservative voice. I think uh, uh, Juan Williams on Fox News might be the equivalent. Uh, you know, Fox is a more conservative outlet, and Juan is a more liberal voice. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your personal uh, work. How do you prepare for an appearance on television to discuss the news? How does that process work? I, I think first off, you know, on that note, um, I've been so fortunate to be at CNN to to be able to present the conservative uh, viewpoint, and you know, the hosts are are great, the producers are great, the the guests are great. You know, there's been a, over the years um, some people that make it more personal than policy, and that's unfortunate. And I I get a lot of hate mail and cuss word tweets and direct messages and emails uh, because of that. But, you know, my lane at CNN is, you know, to be the voice of Republicans across the country. And, you know, my lane is to, to you know, present a, a large swath of, of the country. Look, I, you know, supported President Trump. I have issues with the tone and tenor and what's happened since uh, he lost the election. And I call balls and strikes. When Republicans do well, I say it. When Republicans do bad, I say it. And same with Democrats. I'll praise the President Biden and I'll criticize him. And and my lane is to to um, not drink the Kool Aid and not not be a never Trumper, but to you know call balls and strikes on both sides. And and you know I, I generally tr- when I get a panel, let's say for example, if I'm doing a segment tonight. I'll, I'll get the topics. I'll, I'll do research. I generally reach out to, I've got several members of Congress. I've got the RNC, the NRSC and NRCC. I've got a lot of um, social evangelicals and pro-life groups and NRAs um, groups. And I'll reach out to probably 10 people before a panel and say, what's the latest on this? What are you hearing? What do you think? 
Um, and so that's journalism. Know, yeah, imagine that. Um, and and I'll reach out to again to Democrats to, just to see what they're saying. But then I also look at who's the host. You know, what's their, you know, what's their tendencies? Are they big on, you know, the foreign policy aspect? Are they big on, you know, what part does the host generally really like to, to focus on? And then I'll look at who I'm on the panel with. And, you know, I know generally I'm, I, I know everyone I'm on a panel with, but I, um, for me, I think it's important to, to right out of the gate if possible. And if it's, you know, meaningful, find common ground and, and get it right out there. And for example, we were doing a rehearsal on, uh, you know, the, um, American Americans who were being uh, freed in the hostage, you know, the Iran situation, the Iran situation. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of Republicans that feel like we shouldn't negotiate with terrorists and this is ransom and this money, we can't be guaranteed. It's going to be used for humanitarian purposes. And there's Republicans concerned about this, but my first statement and the first thing I said out of the gate is, you know, Thank goodness these people are freed. Thank goodness they're back, going to be back with their family. God bless America. America can re realize it's good to have Americans back home after a situation like this. And then get into, but here's the concerns about, you know, why this is a problem. So I, I generally try to, you know, make sure and, you know, find a, an area where we agree, Republican or Democrat or, you know, male or female or, or whatever the, the topic is. And, and then, you know, then make sure and, and, and try to, you know, artfully or carefully um, present, here's the side of this issue that you probably haven't thought about, but the, here's where half the country feels on, on this issue. And so I, I think, you know, if you can find common ground, you're, they're going to be much more willing to, to listen to what you have to say in terms of an alternative viewpoint. And I've noticed when I watch you um, that you don't treat people with whom you disagree as enemies. And I think that goes a long way toward having a fruitful discussion. Right. And a lot of these people are, you know, they're genuinely friends of mine. Yeah. And we, we, we get along and, and we have other things to talk about besides politics and, you know, Many of these people, you know, I have a high level of regard for people that have street cred, that have worked on campaigns and have had sleepless nights on the campaign trail and been away from their family and made sacrifices. And, and a lot of us share common, you know, backgrounds of, you know, we've, you know, put our lives on the line for a candidate or a cause. And there's a lot of professional respect for people that um, are willing to you know, commit themselves to a, a candidate or a cause. And, you know, the mutual respect um, really outweighs any political differences when we're having a, a you know, a, a genuine respectful policy conversation. I think people would like to know, um, are, are you ever told by CNN what you can or cannot say? Never. No, they, they you know, they have never said, you know, you can't say this um, because, <laughs> to be quite honest, you know, they've actually said, lean in, you know, lean into <laughs> what you're feeling and we have your back is, is what they say. Oh, that's good um, to hear. You know, obviously, if I'm going on there, you know, saying January 6th was great and Donald Trump won the election, they probably wouldn't say that because that's not true. Um, but since I generally, you know, speak on a factual basis, they have said, you know, lean in, we have your back um, because they know I'm not going to, you know, personally attack anyone. I'm not going to put out you know, misleading information. And, you know, that's how it works. I mean, granted, there are times when they want a panel and, and they'll want someone who is a you know, Republican and Democrat. Sometimes they want, you know, a Republican that um, supports, you know, the government shutdown and a Republican who doesn't support it. And there might be times where they'll say, you know, we're looking for a Republican who thinks the shutdown is great. You know, from that standpoint, they don't tell me what to say. They'll just ask, what's your opinion? And if they already have someone with the like opinion, they'll say, thanks, we'll get you next time. Because they yeah. just want a balanced conversation. And, you know, again, they would never say, well, if you want to be on TV, you got to say this. I mean, believe me, another network has done that many times. Um, <laughs> but now CNN, you know, they know where, you know, the lane, all of their contributors swim in. And, you know, they do a really good job, I believe, to, to make sure and have a well-balanced discussion on these issues. The Gallup poll numbers I mentioned in the introduction are pretty alarming. 
Only 34% of respondents trust the mass media to report the news fully, accurately, and fairly, while 38% do not. Why do you think that is? I'd like to see those numbers, what they were six years ago compared to now, because I truly do think that the former president, for all the good things he did, I think he made a, a big mistake in demonizing the media and calling the media the enemy of the state and and saying the media was fake news if they reported something that he didn't like. Um, I, I think those kind of comments and um, demonizing the, the media um, did cause a lot of distrust and did cause a lot of people to lose faith and confidence in the media and has created a lot of animosity. I, I know colleagues that have been at, you know, Trump events and people are hateful to them. And I think that's a big part of it. Um, and, you know, generally when there is a, a story that's bad or factually inaccurate um, and it makes the headlines, you know, that's going to get a lot of attention. More people, if there's a bad story or a wrong story, that's going to get a lot of attention. But Wesley, the, the, the volume and content of, of media that's um, produced and consumed every day, um, more of it is correct than incorrect. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I wish there was a little bit more faith and confidence in the media because, you know, journalists have an important responsibility yes. to, to, to shed a light on our, our public officials and our, you know, government and what happens in this country. And it's an important responsibility that they all take very seriously. And, you know, the, the more that, People could understand they're they're doing this for all the right reasons. I think that would be that would be much better. But you know, to to, to in defense of um, the media, Congress's approval ratings are much lower. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's something in what you say about uh, President Trump, because the only worse numbers uh, that Gallup, uh, the story I read regarding this poll, said the only worst time was in 2016 which of course was during that election. But I would add a little to it. I think that it's not only President Trump's, uh, shall we say, stridency, but also the reaction to him uh, during the that 16 election and in his presidency, where you saw a truly combative media, often rude and disrespectful uh, in press conferences and so forth. So I think you you I think it's both sides kind of reaching this uh this uh, kind of uh, crescendo of, of uh, ill will. Right. Well, and I think what, what we saw there was um, the ideological um, leanings of the media is a little bit more obvious when there's um, opposition in the White House. And look, you know, journalists are, are, are journalists and do a good job to get the media, um, the facts out there. But, you know, the numbers don't lie. Most journalists are liberal. Most of them are, are left-leaning, and they're going to have a, a different um, level of um, expectation from a Republican person in the White House or in Congress than they're going to have with a liberal. I mean, there's, there's just no question about that. They're, they're going to follow up and push back and probe more with a Republican than they are with with. Uh, a Democrat. Are your and colleagues that, aware that they are like that? Look, the, they're, you know, I'm not talking about specifically my colleagues. No, I'm I don't mean, I don't mean any particular personality, but I mean the people in the media generally. No, I look, I think I know my colleagues and the, the people I work with, um, they're, they're there to get the facts and they, they want answers and they're going to, they're going to push back and they're going to continue to ask you know, whether they ask the same question 10 times, but they want an answer. They don't want, you know, the the response that the talking point that the White House puts out. But, you know, they truly believe and I and I do believe that they want to get the truth and, and get to the bottom of, of situations. But then again, they're probably a little less likely to follow up on a Democrat than a Republican. Uh, I think the uh, Gallup poll also uh, reflects that thinking because the uh, the poll picked up a stark partisan divide. Seventy percent of Democrats trust the media. Twenty-seven <laughs> uh, percent of independents and fourteen percent of Republicans. Um, I think that kind of illustrates people are picking up what you were just describing. 
Right. And, and, and again, every journalist and every editor and every, you know, producer, everyone has their different personal um, ideological thinking. But for the most part, you know, the colleagues I work with and most people that I know, they hang that at the door and, and get the job done. Um, but I think when you're talking about not just media, but oftentimes higher education, there's just a more um, liberal mindset between um, amongst those people. But, you know, also, I think it's important for people to understand there's a there's a difference between the journalists that are out there turning over news stories and the the hosts of these shows that are opinion hosts and right. they will acknowledge I'm an, I'm an opinion host. I, I give my opinion. I'm not a journalist. And, and they will say that. Um, I'm not going to mention any shows or networks, but you know, a lot of the primetime shows on many networks, these are opinion hosts or anchors and they're presenting their opinion. And the, the difficulty is a lot of consumers of news don't understand, okay, okay, that's a journalist, this is an opinion host, and that they all sort of get um, combined together, but there's a difference. There's a you difference know. between a reporter and a pundit. Exactly, and right. And there's, you know, there's a difference, and you open the newspaper, there's a difference between the news page and the editorial page. And a lot of times people just assume it's all, you know, it's all the same, and, and it's, it's different. Yes. Um, I, I was in talk radio uh, before Rush Limbaugh. I was also a talk radio host. Um, and at that time, I was also an author, and I would go on book tours. And the um, talk radio world had uh, conservative and liberal hosts on each station. Right. And uh, it was more guest-oriented in the sense of, you know, as an author, they needed me to fill in the hour, and I needed them to so people would know about my book and stuff. But then Rush Limbaugh came along, and I think he shattered, uh, because of his tremendous talent, right. um, he shattered that model and created a different model, at least in talk radio, which is part of the media, um, that is of the kind of bombastic, strident, conservative host um, that uh, changed talk radio into a conservative bastion of of media, if you will. Um, do you agree with that? And um, do you think that that had an impact on perhaps a counter-reaction with some areas of the media then moving more liberal kind of in a counter-reacting uh, mode? Uh, let me break that down a little bit. Sure. Um, Rush Limbaugh, obviously the the rock star of conservative talk, and really, you know, launched conservative talk. Yep. He was he was an icon, and he was popular, and he was listened to by millions because he was the first and only person to really say it like it was and speak the conservative voice. And people, you know, back then didn't have a lot of options, and they flooded to him, and he basically, you know had the microphone and you know to to your point of much of talk radio for so many years had been dominated by left-leaning hosts and then all of a sudden now there's rush and all of these other right-leaning ones hosts and they were threatened not only you know people were tuning them off but people were um getting the other side of the story and realizing wait there's two sides of this story and you know there's the yellow dog Democrats who say, actually, I might be a Republican. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they felt threatened, you know, financially, but ideologically. And, you know, that's when they tried to, you know, ramp up, you know, their microphone on, on the left. But uh, I think, you know, without a doubt, uh, the beauty and success of talk radio and what Rush Limbaugh was able to do was he had time to really flesh out these t issues and talk about it and educate people and encourage people to, you know, challenge their critical thinking on, on these issues. And, you know, so many people just took what they learned in school or what they read in the paper or listened to on the radio or television as, as gospel. And then all of a sudden you have someone like Rush Limbaugh and others saying, well, actually here's, here's the full story. And when people have the full story and all the facts, 
um, it's it's enlightening, and I think that's where that's where you know we came to you know embrace talk radio, and then we have now Fox News. I think he also showed there was a hunger for that side of the story to uh, or that side of the political spectrum to get a louder voice. Well, absolutely, and, and, and again, you know, there's for, for so many years people. You know, people thought forever the media was reporting the news, and then over time they realized, okay, there's, you know, this is very liberal or very democratic um, focused or supportive. And now that they have, you know, the opportunity to hear and learn from someone who's like minded, that that really um, made talk radio and conservative media much more popular. But it it gave people you know, permission to say out loud, hey, I'm a Republican. That's an interesting point I hadn't considered. Uh, Well, and here's, let me just, one quick thing on that. I grew up in Georgia and um, Zell Miller was the governor when I was a kid and he was a Democrat, um, very, very, very conservative Democrat. Um, And everyone kept trying to get him to be a, a Republican, but, you know, Zell Miller represented the classic Southern Democrat for, for years was, you know, they're more conservative than, you know, the label suggested. And he led Georgia more conservative than a Democrat label suggested. But he said, you know, you know, I'm from the South. We're Democrats. I can't go home to my family and say, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a Republican. I'll, I'll never be invited to the family dinner again. Um, but as, you know, as, as people started to learn more what a conservative is and what a Republican is, it, it, it permeated into their ideology. Like, you know, I've been a Democrat for so long. That's just kind of what my family has been and part of my identity. But actually, I'm a Republican based on my what I think and my ideology. And, and the, the more I, my view is, um, you know, the more educated you are to critically think through these issues, more and more people are realizing that they're conservative or Republican when they didn't have the opportunity to challenge their thinking in the past. And I think some moderate, quote-unquote, Republicans, Rockefeller Republicans, thought to themselves, you know, I'm more culturally attuned to Democrats. Right, right. Yeah, it goes both ways. And so you had had a, a more stark division as opposed to the when I grew up, you know, you had the conservative racist Democrats from the South versus uh, people like a, a Eugene McCarthy or somebody, and, and you'd have a Rockefeller Republican and Goldwater Republican. And that kind of uh, dichotomy seems to have uh, sorted itself out now, perhaps because media now is more visible in terms of, of liberal versus conservative and, and more voices in the field. Right. And, and I think... Uh, I- you know, which has led us to what what I call the tribalism of politics. Yes. I mean, people people get in their camp, you know, and cross their arms and say, "I'm Republican," and um, they're so entrenched in that. And same with with the other side. When you know, sometimes you have to realize, you know, I, I might have I might lean more liberal on a certain issue, or I might be more you know moderate on a certain issue. And you know, I I think the big point of the, the media, I, I feel like it's put people in their corners much more than in years past. So we're seeing less people um, willing to be moderate and reach out to the middle, which I, I think we could be better served if we had a little bit more moderate or compromise um, thinking. Yeah, because in, you've got an equally officials. divided country. It's kind of hard to dominate when 48% disagree with you and 48% agree with you. You know, Rush right. used to do something that I, I thought was very clever. Um, he would, let's say, uh, I, I remember first time he did this when uh, um, President uh, Bush chose Dick Cheney to be his vice president. And then he he would play these tapes of like 10 or 15 different media commentators saying the very same words in reaction to the news story. And I remember in that one, it was, uh, he gives, uh, Cheney gives Bush gravitas and he would do uh, pundit after pundit after pundit after pundit saying he gave Bush gravitas. And uh, you, you still see that kind of phenomenon today. How does it happen that people throughout various areas of the media seem to come up with the exact same words to describe the exact same story? Well, sometimes they get talking points. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm forever getting emails from from reporters that are saying, "Hey, are you getting any 
campaign talking points on this or points on that. And, um, you know, whether it's a conservative host or a Democrat host, or even a, you know, a, a more journalist that's, you know, on a panel, you know, they see the, the talking points that are being put out by the parties or the campaigns. And it just sort of, or, you know, they'll watch another outlet or they'll read something in the paper and it just naturally kind of, you know, becomes ingrained in their thoughts. So it, it's not, not by accident. <laughs> <laughs> Confirming my suspicion, I must say. Uh, one of the things that bothers me a lot is um, the, in terms of media bias, uh, which may exist or not exist in particular stories, but not reporting a story can be the most effective type of bias. So that as you described, we're in these silos if you only list, read or listen to the uh, outlets with which you agree, you may not hear of an important story that the other side is covering because your side of the story finds it harmful to your side of the uh, uh, culture war, if you will. Um, what Do you have any thoughts on that? What you're saying is true. I mean, it happens. And, and this goes back to, you know, there's some outlets that, are more liberal, you know, in their opinion or their editorial decision-making process and others are more conservative in their editorial decision-making process. And, you know, you can go watching, you know, the three networks and the three big cables and you could go in a whole day and not see a, a major story on one network that's all over the other network. And, and, um, this happens all the time. And a lot of it is just because the editorial um, decision makers and the editorial meetings in the morning decide this is the story that we're going to cover, or this one, we don't have enough, you know, um, you know, verifying information to confirm this story. We're not going with it. Um, but it's amazing. Sometimes you can, I'll flip to one of the other networks and not even see something that we're covering it and vice versa. Um, but it just boils down to, you know, in that morning editorial meeting, what, you know, what they think is um, the news and what they think is worth covering. And, you know, obviously if, you know, they're in a press conference and a question about the story that is not on their radar comes up, it, it's something they may look at, but they're often generally just going to wait until there's overwhelming uh, evidence to make that a story that they need to cover. I, I'm thinking of the Hunter Biden situation there, where there seemed to be a huge uh, desire to report it on some aspects of media, more conservative, and, and avoidance of it like the plague on the more liberal side uh, for, for a long time. Obviously, that's no longer true. I mean, what what, what we ha did see for, for so long is there wasn't a connection with President Biden and, and Hunter Obviously, you need to investigate that. But what what really flipped the switch for a lot of news organizations and and said, "Hey, we probably need to cover this," was when you know the administration had said for the past four or five years and up th through a few months ago, they said emphatically that President Biden knew absolutely nothing about Hunter's foreign business deals. Full stop. Period. Zero. And then all of a sudden, you know, when word came out of the whistleblowers testifying. Then their story became Hunter, President Biden wasn't involved in business dealings with Hunter Biden. That's a different story. Yes. That's, that's not the same story. And when Karine Jean Pierre can get out there and say, nothing's changed, um, <laughs> your, your answer changed. And that does um, warrant further investigation. And it does grant validity to an, you know, an investigation by the House. And we are seeing coverage of it now because. You, you know, there's, you know, an emphatic denial um, without any, you know, concrete evidence to the contrary is, is uh, you know, grounds or potential reason for not covering something. So, but when, when their story changes and their response changes, then it's worth probing into. And, and it is getting covered what, now. What you're telling me is very encouraging because, you know, let's assume there, there might be some reluctance to uh, go out on a limb. Uh, on that story, where maybe on a story about Trump, you would have been more, there would have been more of a, a willingness to do that. But that the journalism itch actually counts more than the uh, ideological feelings once that kind of, um, that kind of paradigm gets into, into play. 
Right. And, and, you know, again, these are journalists. And, you know, if you ask the same question, you know, 10 times and you get the same answer, then you'll, you know, eventually you're going to walk away and say, well, maybe that's the answer. Um, but when you ask the same question 10 times and the 11th time you get a different answer, then yes, your radar goes up and you say, well, maybe we might need to, to probe and in, look into this a little bit further. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's still the, you know, closing the loop with, you know, there's been no direct evidence of, uh, of, you know, this, the president benefiting or financially benefiting from this, but, um, the impeachment probe is, uh, on the very beginning stages and it's worthy of investigation. It's worthy of looking into, and I have confidence in, in, you know, those that are putting together the information. I've talked with some people on the house Intel and um, I'm confident in some of the information that we're getting ready to, to hear. And, and that brings up the difference between pundit and reporter again, so that it, the story might be reported. And then when you guys are on the panel, one pundit can can say, well, look, uh, the president has no direct engagement. That is trying to persuade what the facts may mean or not mean. Where, where the, let's say a different pundit would say, yeah, but his family does, and that's just as important, and so forth and so on. So, so I think that's important uh, for people to to remember that again. There's the journalism aspect, and then as this happens in most uh, news programs, there's going to be the pundits who are going to be discussing it from different perspectives. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked on this topic, you know, half a dozen times since the the story changed. And um, dear friends of mine, as I outline exactly what I outlined that, you know, their answer was he had, you know, no knowledge. And then it became he was not in business with him. That's a different story. And even when you say that and you can hold the two quotes up right in front of a Democrat's face, they'll still say nothing's changed. And, you know, the fact that they can just write this off is, is in my view, laughable, but, you know, we'll, we'll let the, the facts come out and wait and see what they are able to uncover in this, in this probe. How important is the New York times in setting the news uh, agenda? It's, it's very important. Um, as I always say, broadcast follows print, you know, the, the broadcast news outlets get up, read the paper and oftentimes, you know, outside of, you know, the independent um, reporting by their own journalists that have a unique story or, you know, independent investigation. Um, what's in the New York Times is is generally going to be a story that they're going to either, you know, just report on um, or, you know, provide the information on. Um, I do a lot of um, NPR. I do a lot of other news um, outlets and I can't tell you how many times I do a, a panel on another news outlet radio and here's the topics and every single topic, there's a link to a New York times article. And it, it is, you know, it, it's not anything new. It's happened for, for decades, but you know, the New York times does typically set the news agenda for the day for outlets across the country. And, you know, that's why it's important to have, you know, conservative voices out there and, you know, the information they put out there oftentimes is a story of the day, whether it's on the shutdown or what, but um, there's generally not a lot of you know conservative uh, input or interviews. Yeah, I think, in I think this is a problem. I mean, the New York Times has tremendous um, resources. Uh, they've got very good writers and, and journalists. But uh, coming with Trump, you had you had one of the editors, I forgot the name, who basically said, well, the days of objective journalism have to end because the threat of Trump is so extreme. And you've been seeing that kind of approach in the New York Times newsroom. Uh, I remember when Senator Tom Cotton uh, was allowed to uh, have a op-ed, op uh, opposite editorial column published about the Black Lives Matter protests and riots. And he said, if there's violence, there needs to be a um, strong response to it. And the editor that authorized that opinion from a United States senator was let go or had to quit because of the reaction of the newsroom to, pr to uh, that print job. And it seems to me that's a crisis for general uh, for journalism generally if the new york times can't be trusted to at least present the stories that are important and need to be discussed 
that that is cancel culture um, run amok in a, a news organization that should um, welcome and embrace both sides of the story. And what Senator Cotton was doing was presenting the other side of a story that they had presented uh, in their editorial pages. And, you know, the no, nothing screams, uh, you know, bias more than an outlet that doesn't want both sides presented. And that leads to the distrust that we've been describing. Right. And uh, I'm going to get with you about what the <laughs> solutions might be in just a few minutes. But I also wanted to ask about the AP style book, which is my understanding is very important in media. How, what is the AP style book and why do we or why should uh, consumers of news care? I use that a lot in my back in my day. It, it, I used to have the hard copy. It was actually a spiral, <laughs> spiral um, AP style book. And I, I feel like it was it was more for written, you know, if you're um, writing than um, broadcast simply because it would help you how to abbreviate um, things or how to abbreviate the days of the week or how do you attribute or how do you title someone. Um, but it, you know, for, for years and years, it's been the, the gold standard for just how to grammatically accurately, you know, report your story and, you know, use a, a style that is universal in terms of, you know, the American um, media. And, uh, and in my view, it, it was kind of like, you know, how do I make sure that I'm doing this correctly? And it was a, it was a good framework from which to, to write your stories or to issue attribution. It would often give you um, advice or it would lay down the rules in terms of, you know, how do you attribute your sources and information? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, being rewritten of, it's over become time more than for, that though now hasn't it yeah yeah and you know in the day and age of political correctness there's been some uh, addendums to it but you know the ap style book that i knew and loved and used and relied on uh was you know the gold standard for how do we have uniform um factually accurate unbiased media coverage uh, in this country but my experience with it is that it has become also a way of skewing the lexicon used by the media. For example, you can't call a pro-life person who identifies I'm pro-life. You can't say they're pro-life, they're anti-abortion rights. And you can't, but you can call a person who supports abortion pro-choice if they so self-identify. And it leads to, um, uh, I've seen it in the assisted suicide issue, which, which uh, I work very hard. And and the marching orders went out, it seemed to me, I'm that's my term, uh, from the, assist, the euthanasia advocates to say, don't call it assisted suicide, call it medical aid in dying. And boom, suddenly most of the media was calling it medical aid in dying. And I thought to myself, gee, I wish I had that capacity to, to uh, kind of direct how these things are discussed, because that can skew somebody's um, thoughts on what to think about a story. Exactly. And that, you know, as an example, I'll, I won't say the news outlet, but I was being interviewed by a, a print outlet, uh, one of the main main national print outlets on the the abortion issue. And I was advocating for, you know, this was about Roe v. Wade and how it will impact the elections. And I talked about, you know, here's how the pro-life community uh, views this. Here's how the pro-life community is going to start talking about this. And I always, you know, refer to my side as the pro-life community and the other is the abortion. Well, I see the, the article comes out and, and I'm referred to as um, anti-abortion advocate, Alice Stewart. And it just so happened I was having lunch with the person the next day and it wasn't big enough where I was going to make a big deal about it, but over, you know, chicken salad, I said, um, by the way, you referred to me as um, pro-abortion. She goes, I know that's the way we have to use it because pro-life makes it sound like it's it's positive. And, you know, when you're restricting a woman's rights, there's nothing positive about that. Exactly. The, I, exactly the point. Anti, yeah. You have to be called anti-abortion because to call you pro-life would make people look at you more favorably. Exactly. And, and she said, she goes, now here's where she, she did say, she goes, did I was, how was that? Did I misquote you? I said, no, I said, but I said several times that, you know, I'm pro-life and I, I always refer to myself as pro-life. She goes, well, as long as I, I didn't, it's not from a direct quote. And that was just in, um, 
you're referencing you, then that's the way they want us to do it. But if I had, she used a specific quote for me and used my quote and put um, anti-abortion, um, then she would have, she wouldn't have fixed it, but she would have said, oh, sorry about that. But, you know, they will label you as anti-abortion over pro-life. And same with, now you can't call people um, illegal immigrants. They have to be undocumented. Yeah, or or migrants and and so migrants, forth. But these yes. are these yeah. are like um, and without getting into the substance of those issues, when you when you characterize when you control the language, you're actually trying to, I think, influence how people think about it. Oh sure, it's a it's a subtle it's a subtle inference in you know guiding someone's mindset on this. You know, it's kind of like the uh, you know subliminal suggestion and you know the movie theater um but you know the same with the the gun rights issue i'm i'm strong second amendment um supporter um and i believe in you know the right to bear arms but you know they want to they want to call us um pro guns and you know i re- refer them as um uh, you know gun control activists but they they you know they just like to label themselves in a way that's um much different. But, but that but, side gets to label themselves how they want. And right. the side that is cons- considered by many in the media to be wrong, don't get that option. And right. when I, when I do uh, my writing on these issues, um, I always try to refer to people by the, the description that they choose for themselves, uh, because I think that's respectful. Um, right. Well, and you can refer to me as she, her, hers. That's how I like <laughs> yeah, to refer to myself. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about fact checking. I had a um, irritating experience where I wrote a piece. Again, it was about assisted suicide in Oregon. And what I wrote was 100% correct, absolutely factual. And one of the major fact checking groups said that was partially true. And I contacted them and I was pretty angry about it. I said, what is false about what I wrote? And they said, well, you didn't provide enough context. Well, it was a 750 word opinion piece. I mean, to, to put the full context would have taken up the entire 750 words. So you can say true, I mean, because it was factually true and, and then say, perhaps if you want more context on this, see such and such. But to say that I only, what I wrote was partially true because they were in opposition, I think, Based on that, uh, really upset me, and and I hear a lot of uh, discord about fact checking. That it's often, well, I don't agree with your opinion, so it's factually false. What am am I onto something there? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> um, look, here's the thing: an opinion column is not a news article, and if someone is tasked with, assigned with, or offers up to write an opinion column. You're going to present your opinion, you know, based on the facts, um, and it's not your role in your your opinion column to make the case for the other side. Um, and so, for them to say that your column wasn't, you know, factually accurate because you didn't plead the case for the other side is um, is extremely misleading. Um, you know, if anything, you know, if if something was factually inaccurate about it, they should have pointed it out. But that's where I think, you know, whenever I write a, a column, I write for a lot of different outlets, but, and I know liberal friends of mine that, that write columns and they can just write a piece and submit it. And they're just checked for making sure the I's are dotted and yeah. the T's are crossed. Yeah. Every other word I say, I have to have an attribution to a, some poll or fact or article or direct um, quote video from someone to, to vac- fact check just about every sentence of my piece. So as I'm writing a piece, I put links to the facts and everything because it cuts down on the editing process later. But, you know, when I'm asked to, you know, tweak my opinion on something, I'm not going to do that. You know, if I'm writing an opinion piece, I'm going to put the facts in there. And then here's my opinion based on these facts. And, you know, I, I do think some outlets are going to hold conservative opinions to a little different fact checking standard than um, the other side. But that's the, that's the challenge of being a, a conservative in this day and age is we might have to think a little bit more or provide a little bit more supporting data. But um, I think the more we can make our case based on fact instead of feeling, 
um, the more compelling an argument it is. I want to talk about your podcast because I think what you're doing is important. I used to uh, really enjoy watching CNN's Crossfire because you would have a, a very capable conservative and liberal host, uh, both uh, cross-examining and generally examining a very capable liberal and conservative guest. And that allowed uh, a full uh, um, and well-rounded discussion about an important issue of the day. And then that went away. And it seems to me that your podcast um, with Maria Cardona uh, is, is an important attempt to try to revive that tradition. Tell us about uh, your podcast and and what you're trying to do. Yeah, the podcast is called Hot Mics from Left to Right. And Maria Cardona is a dear friend of mine, a Democrat. She worked in the Clinton administration. She's a, a, um, a Democrat um, consultant. She uh, does a lot of work with the DNC, and she's a beautiful, vibrant, intelligent Latina woman and is very involved in the Hispanic um, outreach efforts and uh, just super smart. And you know, we've done CNN panels together for, for many years, and people would always say, we need our own show. Of course, we couldn't agree more. but. Um, <laughs> So we started doing a podcast um, during COVID and um, every week we sit down and talk about the issues and um, agree to disagree and, and have, you know, respectful differences of opinion. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, a lot of these things we, you know, spend more time, just as much time talking about what we, what we agree on, but ultimately she's advocating for the democratic um, ideology and, and, me for the Republican. And I think it's important to, to have these conversations. I tell my students at Harvard all the time is, um, you know, you can, what we call the civility of American politics. I, I have the, 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 the four C's, which is, you know, find common ground, compassion, consensus, and conversation without confrontation. And, you know, the more we can do that, um, the more we can, you know, coexist and, um, you know, really realize that, you know, we're all in this together. And, you know, the, the more we can, you know, have respect for the other side, you know, look, as I, as I also say, you know, when you have these conversations, you're, it's not about changing someone's mind. It's about broadening their understanding and who doesn't want to understand things better. That's, that's you know, right. Somebody, and I noticed yeah. that uh, when you guys are, are having a debate, you'll end it with saying, well, we'll just agree to disagree and move on to the next. And, and I think that's, that's a very mature approach. And I think it would, uh, if we had more of that, I think some of this distrust and anger that people feel towards the media could abate. And, and that brings me to, uh, my penultimate question, uh, which is, um, how can consumers be better, uh, consumers of media? How, how can we, who, uh, depend on you uh, for information and, and to kind of help shape our opinions. How can we make it so that there's less distrust uh, than currently seems to exist? It's important to, to consume your news from many outlets. And, you know, it's easy to get stuck in your, your silo of your news network and people that you like. Um, but if you really want to be an educated, you know, uh, voter and consumer of news and citizen, um, seek out, you know, news outlets that have information from all sides. I, I always go to realclearpolitics.com in the morning and they have the top stories of the day, but they'll have, you know, liberal leaning article, Republican, you know, and Republican, and you can go down the list, the top stories of the day, and you're going to have viewpoints from both sides. And I think, the best thing you can do as an, an educated citizen is, you know, challenge yourself to consume information from all sides and make up your own mind. And um, that makes you, you know, certainly much more well-rounded. And, you know, if anything, it probably confirms uh, where you stand. It makes you more convicted on your, uh, where you And, and better you able believe. to understand where the other side is coming from and be able to engage perhaps friends and family and so forth in, in these conversations. This is the true penultimate question. Um, what can media do to um, ease what I think is a crisis and distrust? Look, I, I think, you know, just again, I can't say it enough. 
the majority of journalists out there do strive to get the facts, just the facts and only the facts, ma'am, and and put it out there. And, you know, just making sure when they're, you know, doing these interviews that obviously you get both sides and you don't make it personal. You just make it about the facts. And, and again, you know, journalists, you know, the White House press corps and across the country, um, they understand the, the importance of, of, of what they do. And um, I just think sticking with the facts and presenting the, the facts is the most important thing that they can do. And finally, what next for Alice Stewart? What next? Uh, keep continue doing what I'm doing. We've got the, the presidential campaign is, is, um, is kicking into high gear, which is exciting. And I'm excited with the, the, at, at Harvard, we've started a conservative coalition. So we have, um, you know, a good strong group of conservative students that um, have a place where we can come and talk and bringing more conservative voices on campus to, to, speak with them and, and give them a, a place where they can, you know, share their ideas out loud. And um, <laughs> I, I'm excited about the, the new school year, the um, presidential campaign. So it's, it's going to be, be a good fall. Well, Alice, thank you for being on Humanize and I hope we'll talk again. I look forward to it, Wesley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Human Eyes, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.